0: the very rules of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is how can change the world okay. okay. state of things in of violence without
1: object This is the typical violence of
0: Violent, because what happens then is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding
1: here. Welcome to Gun Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get going with today's guest, just want to throw out, I've got a Patreon at patreon.com. Forward slash m u h h if you can swing it and you like the show uh, you know consider throwing me a buck a month we have our libidinal band back together for I believe this will be wicked leotard part four we've got our returning champions we've got Taylor Atkins is going to be our lead guitarist uh, we've got cute numina cute is going to be playing what are you going to do cute are you going to are you our bass bass player maybe and then I actually play drums in real life <laughs> oh nice oh sweet and then we've got young Agamben playing a uh, rhythm guitar. So, playing uh, 808s. Right, yeah, there you go. The, two, two the drum, drum machine and the, yeah. We're all about the rhythm, you know? We're taking a look at the second half of chapter three from Leotard's Libidinal Economy, and the overall title of the chapter is The Desire Called Marx. And so the sections we're looking at are There Are No Primitive Societies, Inorganic Body, Eduarda and Little Girl Marx, Force and Tautology some things that jumped out about or from the text or the second half of the chapter that I was kind of interested in looking at were one, this notion of this idea of symbolic exchange and Leotard's critique of sort of Baudrillard's take, which is sort of based on Marcel Mauss and Mm -hmm. what structural anthropology. So we have that also importantly, I think the last section on tautology I saw, and you know, we can dig into this, but One thing I saw was perhaps, or I'll lay this out and we can get into it later, is this kind of similar relationship. This is how I read it was. There's kind of this similar relationship between currency and like maybe value and signified or signifier signified, because they're both sort of only they're both sort of in these self-referential systems of value or meaning, but there's sort of a circular logic present there that ultimately I think is a nihilist, you know, is a sort of a nihilism. And then what else? There's um, exchange, of course, I think is a big component here, not only symbolic, but, you know, in the stuff where he, Leotard's getting into Eduarda and little girl Marx, and he's extending that prostitution metaphor that we've discussed in a couple of the last uh, episodes. But I don't know, what I what, uh, jumped out to you, gentlemen?
2: Yeah, I think that's a good sort of list. So sort of signposting the chapter. And I think, This chapter, especially for me, and we'll get into this probably the next time too, when we talk about trade and and currencies and whatnot, but there's sort of a truly economic theory here, or at least a a, uh, contention with economics in a way that the first few chapters sort of allude to. And obviously the book itself sort of postures that it's going to make some sort of economic argument. But this is where I really get the sort of meat and potatoes of where I can apply Loyotard to sort of as, as almost a, uh, what would you call it? Like a counter economics, not even a counter economics, just a, a different iteration of economic analysis that's probably more helpful for understanding contemporary finance than most theories of value.
1: I guess we should also mention this inorganic body as well of capitalism. And I think there's some ties to like, you know, this organic, inorganic, machinic, etc. And then like mm-hmm. you mentioned, you know, economics, he even references Shrafa, or I'm not sure if that's... Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with it? Chris, you studied, you kind of have a feel for economics. Are you familiar with Schraffa at all?
2: Um, not him, but I, I do do a lot of economic theory. So this is w- sort of what is most interesting to me about Loyotard yeah. is, is sort of my, my own work in financial theory uses his basis of, or his theory of exchange as sort of like a way to understand the collapse of, of uh, financial models after 2008, especially like the... The structures of derivatives can be understood very easily if you look at Loyotard in a way that economics completely did not uh, understand what was happening there. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I can expand on that later if somebody wants to, to
3: jump in.
1: What about you cute? Anything about from this second half of the chapter?
3: Yeah. Mostly what you guys already riffed on, um, kind of Baudrillard's, you could say like maybe connection to libidinal economics in general. And then how that, at least with just some of the stuff that I've been reading or looking into recently with Bataille, I feel like a lot of this makes sense or at least Live Economics, I feel like have a very
1: Yeah, there's definitely like, could, a religion. could be
3: could yeah, it could be in it could be interpreted using Bataille's notion of expenditure
1: and definitely, at least in symbolic exchange and death, is definitely referencing Bataille significantly in that book. So
0: Yeah, that's what I was reading over the past past day and a half or so was volume one of accursed share and i think that i was still on you coop but i'll try to say it a little bit here where one of the the fundamental he uses a couple of words for it but you know batai is thinking about what he'll call exuberance or um, expenditure you know this excessive expenditure or he'll even call it exudence right and he obviously you know, links it back to this. Uh, you know, the notion of the expenditure of the energy of the sun, right, and that being necessary for all life on on Earth. And you know, to to a certain extent too, right? It's it, it is a kind of uh, equilibrium that we are worried about, right, with with things like climate change and, and these other things, because precisely if the sun uh, it, it weren't a uh, what an orange sort of big star but we're more like a a smaller like bright white star we would it would be too much energy so there is too like a notion that you know there are there are thresholds there are limits which too much energy in the system can be disruptive to the possibilities of life that's interesting yeah um,
1: because i'm thinking about this in the context of the different so the different types of stars that there are how brightly they burn is based on the type of fuel source and mass etc right
0: Right, the so in,
1: in a sense you could lay it out as like a metaphor for the libidinal band because in terms of intensity the the orange or the red sun is going to be you know the brightest stars are a blue white those are the brightest stars they burn the brightest they also you know the trade off there which i think is sort of equivalent to this heating up and sl- or slowing down speeding up of the libidinal band is those stars burn out through their fuel the fastest and then as you you know, move down the sort of color spectrum of stars, they may not, they don't burn through their fuel as bright or they don't burn as brightly, but they tend to live or last a lot longer before they go supernova or, or whatever the case may be at the end of their life cycle.
0: Well, that's a good point. I mean, that is, you know, you can think about the, the scale from, from white to red on, of the colors yeah. of the stars as a, as the rough breakdown of, how much energy they're expending, how much heat they're giving off too, which Mm -hmm. is important. You know, you can think about that as the, as the libidinal band, right? The furiously rotating libidinal band at white hot, you know, at the, at the upper end of the stars, the possibilities of life are virtually null, at least on the the surrounding, you know, planets. And, And we can think about how the earth even, went through a process of accretion, you know, 4 billion, 4.3 billion years, you know, furiously uh, rotating, but in the process slowing down and losing some of that heat to give the possibility yeah, right. for, for um, the surface of the, the earth to, Oh, that's good. You know, and the waters themselves to enter a kind of a conducive, uh, uh, you know, uh, level and, and, and that's, so as the bar slows down as the, you know, as the planetary, the biosphere, it becomes possible with the slowing down, with with a you know kind of a sink sinking off of some of that some of that heat and that energy. Yeah. And I do think that 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 it's you know it's interesting to think about exorbitance or what Leotard calls exorbitance, right? The exorbitant, that which precisely is either outside value or doesn't have value in the sense in which we think about it in terms of a system of exchange. This is precisely why the prostitution thing we he keeps coming back to and we keep coming back to, right? The capital being the sort of condition of possibility for for what what does he call it? For a kind of it not only binds forces and makes them manageable, but it makes them able to be to be exchangeable, right? Yeah, he even says, he even kind of talks like Bataille on page 141. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but. He talks about living force gives more than it takes, consumes less than it produces—a little meta-economic miracle of the extravagant gift, which would be the forgotten origin of all wealth creation. This gets back to the the organic and inorganic body. You know, the the organic body of the of of labor power of of the the proletariat, and that being a kind of we could call it a mirage, but it is, it is also a desire, right? It is this desire beneath the inorganic body of capital and it's, and it's in that, I think that's, that's what frames the tension between the quote unquote little girl marks and the, and the, and the old man prosecutor marks. But he does say at the bottom of 141 labor force. And I think that's not a good translation. I think Grant should have just translated as labor power because that conforms with the basic translation of, Marx, at least the, the common one so so it should be labor power like arbeids crap labor power is exorbitant or at least beyond value in as much as the origin of surplus value escapes the whole system of valuations at the same time as it renders this possible with the result that this is not even a general wrong done to it but a meta wrong a wrong which is not economic but ontological that kind of language starts to get us into the language of like the different which i'll just Leave off, but the point being, that's kind of the he seems to be saying that's that's seems to be that which is elided or or even like under erasure in the in the development of capitalism is this forgetting of of this kind of of this ontological exorbency, right? Or, or the exorbitant, the ontologically exorbitant, that which is sort of beyond value because it's in the very foundations of the systems of valuations.
3: Uh, Just to kind of riff with you, Taylor, I felt like, at least with Bataille, a lot of Bataille's, you could say, like his base materialism is a really good way to kind of make sense of this libidinal economics, at least how you were illustrating it, because there's always this excess value. Even when, for example, when there's theories, maybe like Baudrillard's theory of exchange value or symbolic exchange, sorry, it's always working within these particular parameters of trying to still you could maybe say rationalize or sim- symbolize this excess amount of value or energy in a particular system. But I think even in Bataille's, you could say like, I would say maybe like ontology or metaphysics, it's always this extra bit of energy or
1: mm-hmm.
3: value that is, it's non-signal. You, you, you can't attach a signifier to it or you can't really rationalize it or put it within a particular enclosed system because that's the point, right? It's, it's that it's this excess, that which is like even in in terms of thought like trying to think about it that that surplus is already escaping it's already it's right. already escaping that system so at, at least in one sense, maybe to tie this to like the 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 libid, libidinal band, traditional economics is too far on one particular side of the band. That's too at least like traditional economics is rationalizing this notion of energy, trying to systematize the exchange, the value of an economy. And then on the other on the other hand, you have these libidinal intensities that it's like. When well, no, like there's always this value, there's always a surplus amount of value in a particular transaction. For example, like in the set of prostitution, it's like, well, it's not just whatever sort of compensation the individual gets or even the pimp. There's a cert- sort of erotic value that uh, the person that's even getting the services gets from it. And that's already escaping the transaction itself mm-hmm. at a maybe even at a, an unconscious level. And so there's always this, maybe this subset Within a particular system, that's to tie it back to Bataille, that's not that's non-totalizable from the start.
1: Reminds me very much of like a Lacanian real, but and Lacan kind of goes into this a bit too, like this notion of surplus. Both, I think, in I guess more so like in terms of semiotically or linguistically, I guess there's always been this excess produced or this surplus of meaning or whatever the case may be, but. I don't have too much else to go on there. Chris, did you have any any points to bring up here?
2: I have a question for you guys, but I'll sort of preface this with with my my thoughts on this too. Is I really like this sort of idea of this excess labinal energy in economics. There's almost this theory that the value created by the market is a real thing. You know, it's the market basically creates the material value for things in a rational way. You know, it's sort of based on the rational movement of prices, but especially recently, there's, there's this problem where I think uh, Loyotard really gets onto this of like, well, what happens during massive like financial bubbles? You have this point where you'll have people being like, this is not rational. Like these prices just don't make any sense at a rational level, you know, and you'll have these hedge funds that'll be like, okay, like the housing crisis, you know, in 2006, we'll start buying credit default swaps because this is a bubble. These prices don't make any rational sense yet. The prices still go higher. Pricing is basically this arbitration of semiotics, of varying theories of value that are converging onto this other semiotic space, right? And I think yeah. Loyotard kind of gets that when he says uh, on page 97, he calls it the sense of postponement, right? So I think he, he kind of understands this excess pleasure, enjoyment in the postponement of sort of rationality itself, the postponement of a return to sort of like the rational price value, right? He also calls it the joy sauce of infinity. You know, there's this libidinal energy that drives the prices of things up that are completely divorced from the rationality of of what they're buying, right? Like prices that just don't make any rational sense. So my question basically is that with this idea of financial arbitrage being the arbitrage of semiotics, financial arbitrage being the strategy of being like, okay, these prices are not what they should be, and I will basically close the price discrepancy from what the rational price should be with the price where it's at right now, right? You have this arbitration of, of the semiotic value of the mm-hmm. underlying material. Well, what's the relation then for Loyotard or just in your own opinion, how, how do we rationalize this, if there is at all a materialism, like the underlying material in which these, these signs are, are trying to signify, right? The mm-hmm. signs themselves are trying to point towards a material value. Mm-hmm. What is the relationship between economics as it's sort of semiotic functioning in the market versus what is that relationship compared to like the material or, you know, for example, like what's the difference between the semiotic pricing of buying oil in which you never get, you know, barrel of oil. You're never buying anything. You're buying the semiotic thing, right. the the price. It's like a virtualized. Yeah. Exactly. So what's, is there still a relationship here to the material and is that material really the, the stock itself, or is it the libidinal intensities Uh, that are directed towards that thing? Yeah, That's sort of what I'm trying to figure out for myself. I like that. I mean, I definitely
1: think he's going there with, I just want to say last section on tautology, I think is very much Mm -hmm.
0: going in that direction. But uh, go go ahead, Taylor. The thing that we keep seeing him do is is that we, we make this exclusive disjunction, right? Intensities, materials, materialities, you know, Guattari might call them science particles or whatever right but science particles in Guattari's sense is 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 definitely that hyper virtual object that only exists for you know a nanosecond precisely Mm -hmm. because it it's it's because it makes possible the kind of quantic experimental observational like position for a moment it guarantees that theoretical crux and and so I, I guess that's I guess that's for for Leotar. It's 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 precisely the fact that like it's when we have our we can only obviously in in the discourse and we've we've talked about this before. You know, in the discourse, we have to make that cut in order to make that division theoretically and critically, and at the same time, we then have to you know figurally start to 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 unwind that that opposition or that exclusion because it's precisely. An effect of, of, of the representationality that, that we have to mm-hmm. seize upon. Right. So, so like part of the movement to make those distinctions and then to try to unravel the very basis for them or to show them to be merely an effect of the spacing of discourse. That's partly why he he keeps going back to Batai's Madame Eduarda, um, the you know, his main point. And I think what is it that Madame Eduarda's perversion her madness doing in, in, in disrupting the the quote unquote normal economy of the pimp and the prostitute and the client right this this holy Trinity or Holy Trinity and his main point is that it's precisely her derangement her mm-hmm. sort of exorbitant you know delirium and desire that allows her to enjoy the uh, the prostitution act the act of prostituting herself whereas so she she violates the presu- presumed coldness of of the of the prostitute in the transactionality of of this kind of that's supposed to be uh, an exchange of money for for pleasure on the part of the of, on the part of the John and she participates in that she's able to to tap in. Uh, herself through this madness into, into jouissance herself, which is supposedly either forbidden her, it, not ontologically, but transactionally, right. Economically, it's, it's, it's not something she's supposed to partake in. Oh, this is on page 137. If you want to look Got at it. it, this is at the top of 137. I think it's, I think it's kind of worth reading because I think it does tie tie together. Some of the stuff we were talking about. Of course, prostitution is still in
2: order a separation and a distribution of pulsational movements into distinct poles, each of which fulfills a definite function in the circulation of goods and joyances. But intensities are lodged here no less than in every possible network. Madame Eduarda is not only a prostitute in the sense of order, which authorizes the semiotics and a sociology of prostitution, she is also a mad woman. What does her madness stem from? From excessively enjoying her profession, the rule of coldness is not respected. It is on the contrary, the deregulation from frenzy and orgasm that she dares to obtain under cover of her job. Not the distinction between what belongs to the hypothetical lover and what belongs to the client, but the disjunctive bar turning on the disjunctive function itself. Intensity being produced without any reference to an outside, but by heating to white hot, the operator of this exteriorization. The taxi driver will have shot his load as if it had just been under as if it had just been another lay he will have paid nothing his vehicle will have served as a hotel bedroom he had asked for nothing and finally it is insanity he held and penetrated and not neutral venal flesh eduarda the prostitute journeys beyond every pimp's organization but in the same place on the same terrain as this organization by the very fact of her venal position as a body commodity
0: this is part of what we were kind of talking about right it's one in the same system intensities materialities right and Mm -hmm. she's it's precisely her madness her delirium, her derangement that this the sort of deregulation of the uh, of the circuit of of exchange and she kind of not necessarily breaks it but taps into it in a way that one could call it like she she receives in a, a kind of accursed share that 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 seemingly shouldn't belong to her in the normal states of affairs in the normal states of of the, the the prostitutes economy yeah that's a very
2: interesting paragraph there's a lot to unpack there i really like what you said about that that sort of accursed share that she shouldn't necessarily have that's a really interesting, there's almost something revolutionary about when he says, use me to enjoy being used. Mm, right, it's almost to yeah. steal value back from your exploiter.
1: How much does that tie back to the famous quote about the English workers enjoying their, the destruction of their bodies and the mules meal, and so forth, right? No, that, and mean, that was like a that's direct ch- metaphor. That's
0: the, right? that's the beginning of chapter three, right? Yeah. Where he, yeah. I think that that is precisely. Um, drawing that out, drawing that point out yeah. further.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: yeah the the enjoying the destruction of of their bodies right yeah maybe doing
3: potlatch with their bodies like how much of it um like how are they in a way to step one up their their master right or like (laughs) their own circumstance of oppression it's like oh well i want to work and enjoy it i'm gonna echo taylor here and just mention to a large extent the libidinal right is Mm -hmm. a material right so in a way you're always maybe still stuck in This notion of materiality, regardless of whether or not um, you could say maybe those virtual intensities exist or not, because Mm -hmm. in a way it's precisely because they are valued as such, maybe that those projections that financial capital is valued in that regard, that it is materially real in that sense, right? Because, for example, it's it's not so much as you mentioned the barrel of oil that's. Mm-hmm. that's actually valuable exchanged.
1: here. It's, right. Or exchanged, really.
3: It's the it's maybe even like the trust in the oil itself.
1: Mm. Like, or the, the libidinal oh, desire for oil's or functionality
3: the oil. is like electricity. And
2: I think that's a great exactly. point. That's exactly what the conclusion I'm currently at. I think and you're it, absolutely right. It's substituting the material instead of the thing itself, the desire that's, you know, the cathexis towards that object itself is the and, material.
3: And in that same... You could say in the same loop if you're maybe thinking about it and like in positive feedback terms, it's mm-hmm. exactly because of that it falls back on it itself so much that it um it it does produce that excess value. I mean, like for example, like what can you do with a barrel of oil? You can power like I think it's like what's the statistic like 160 regular like homes for like a day, power I forget how many cars for nine hours, or and you can create. I think it's like about like a ton of plastic directly out of one barrel of oil. Damn. And so in that sense it's like yeah, you're always you're always going to have actual like material, what is it called? material objects or commodities that are actually directly tied to the oil, mm-hmm. but it's what what those commodities themselves fulfill. Right. And in, in terms of maybe tying this back to like Lacanian lack, how many mm-hmm. desires does it fulfill? And in that yeah. sense if you can Rationalize that, and then systematize that. That's where that value derives from, and at that point, you can, yeah. you can, you can attribute that value to whatever. It's kind
2: yeah. of arbitrary, and that's like a major break. Even though it's sort of almost like an oak, so simple because you can basically get that idea from the title of the text itself, libidinal economy or libidinal economics. But there's a major break there with both Marxist and you know orthodox economic theories of value. That theory of value is not The labor theory of value, and it's certainly not the theory of value that comes from any economic school of thought, where you could almost utils, you know, you would value something due to its utility. That's just not that's not true, you know. It's it's what you're saying. It's this like underlying libidinal energy being directed towards those objects, or what they fulfill in terms of almost like joissance for the person who wants to purchase it, which is a very very important concept, and I think it's it's an even more important concept with sort of like the late capitalism we're in now it certainly follows follows that theory of value to you know it's it's clearly evident that that's how value works in a way that that's why sort of marxism and economics both can't really get their get their fingers around that where Loyotard sort of actually makes that step that i think is absolutely true that the underlying material is libidinal and not Oil, you know, not commodity yeah, it's itself.
1: A, yeah, there's a talk signifier signified sort of metaphor relationship. I wonder, like Chris and I had talked a long, long time ago. We did an episode on Baudrillard. And I don't know if this exactly would make sense here. But one of the things we kind of discussed was the supreme brick. Yeah. In this conversation of, of sign value, because this is dealing with, you know, what is value in, in this context? Because... The utility of the brick doesn't really justify its price. Right. In a traditional context, the labor, the amount of labor time it takes to produce the supreme brick is not any more significant than any other sort of brick. So, how do you, how does one explain value for something that is really tied to libidinal excess? uh, Right. Right. Because It's the superfluous character of the expenditure, owning the commodity for its mere sign value without any Any basis in, in, yeah, exactly, any basis in any real form of utility, unless you're extending utility further out than typically discussed in economics, where you're saying, like the utility I'm deriving from the purchase increased social whatever. Right. You know what I mean? Like social capital, yeah, exactly. uh, Cloud or social capital. so in that sense, it's, there's, you know, it's a libidinal drive. Just to add
3: to you what you've said, Coop, And in that sense, that's like maybe trying to rationalize how that makes sense, right? Right. Uh, as you, as you were pointing to, but it's like clout in a way, clout is still a form of value, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So in that, in that sense, a transformation of value from, for a commodity, maybe that in itself is already virtual to that object, right? right. So like Supreme, like the brick, yeah, like, it's just a brick, right? But the social clout that you get from it is right. still... Has uh, it has its own utility. It's Yeah, yeah its own utility function. And and then that way, it's like... You could say it's like that saying, like humans are some of the only... Well, some dolphins and stuff like that. But we yeah. are some of the only creatures that have intercourse for exactly. fun, you know, for pleasure. It's like, how much do we value pleasure in that sense? It's just economics of pleasure.
1: Libinal release of exchange. It's... Right? Exactly.
0: I think there's this other interesting thing with yoking Marx and Freud in a way that brings it back to how the circulation of money, capitalism, uh, the inorganic body of capital shows the truth, both the truth and the dissolution of the the Oedipus complex, right? And this is where Leotard keeps coming back to. It says capital is not the denaturation of relations between man and man or between man and woman. It is the wavering of the imaginary primacy of genitality, of reproduction and sexual difference. It is the displacement of what was in place. It is the unbinding of the most insane pulsions, since money is the sole justification or bond. And money being able to justify anything, it de-responsibilizes and raves absolutely. It is the sophistics of the passions, and at the same time, their energetic prosthetics. So what I mean by that, it shows the truth of Oedipus in its dissolution, right? We already know from Anti-Oedipus and from Leotard himself the way in which capitalism's axiomatic is constantly coming up to its limit and and then pushing it pushing it out, right? It, it has all these different limits that it's constantly transgressing and, and yet able to incorporate. And if we follow Leotard's logic of and he gets this from Marx. He has all those quotes of Marx about this universalization of prostitution. You know, I think back to um, one of William Blake's early poems. It's not very good, but it's uh it's it, and not compared to his other stuff. But he he constantly he, he the the poem's very simple, but it's basically, you know, you've got this worker, obviously generally male, who's overworked, who then tries to sort of regulate his you know, let's just say the economy of 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 pleasures with this economy of the reality principle, and there is there is not just an abundance of, of of bars and taverns to get alcohol and to sort of let's just say kind of put that allow your body to to kind of get in tune. Right, you can imagine you know, amphetamines in the morning, caffeine in the morning and alcohol mm-hmm. at night so that you can keep that cycle going, but there's also proliferation of, of prostitutes. And so the the man, there's this denaturing, if you will, we can put that in quotes, this denaturing of the husband-wife relation that gets gets caught in this exchange of bodies that of, of prostitution and what happens is a proliferation of of disease, right? A proliferation of syphilis, and then what happens is the the husband brings that home, infects the the wife, and and passes it on to the children, right? Syphilis or something like that. And this was a kind of I mean, there was definitely in the night in the 18th century and early 19th century, you, you saw with the rise of industrialization this kind of explosion of of a kind of health crisis. And so this dissolution of the, the Oedipus complex to wrap it all up is. Is precisely the the more and more the imaginary relation, if you will, between uh, man and woman, the quote unquote denaturing of it, that capital and money and the circulation of money brings about. The more and more the family unit itself is put under this immense pressure, and shows the truth of what it always was—that it was always open to the outside, and it was always suffused by the social. You know that was always a kind of you know imaginary enclosure between the walls of the. Of the the picket fences, and this is why you know another quote unquote crisis in uh, in capitalism isn't just a question of profit and, and these other things, but but actually the the crisis at the heart of the the nuclear family, and you see this. Bataille does this great does this great in the volume one of the cursed Share, but you can even look at it in, in Leotar where it is this. You know, one could say it is this move away, increasingly a a kind of subordination of ties affiliation to ties of alliance. And that's that whole dialectic is uh it shows the the mirage, if you will, of that that desire for this outside that would be a full body, that would be sort of natural communism or whatever. And it's the mirage of what he calls a desire for harmonious genitality, right? This um you know, and, and we can kind of see that, especially, you know, it seems more and more we see the natural anchoring of identity and, and sexuality is, is no longer in a classical image, right? The, that's no longer a, you know, a determining model for understanding subjectivity in a traditional way. And, and, and at the same time, you know, just to think about the expenditure and the explosion of human beings from, you know, as, as Bataille kind of says, like the more and more technology accelerates, the more we transgress the Malthusian principle that there's not enough food for the amount of people we have. And yet technology makes, uh, remakes the possibilities, the conditions of possibility of like humans throughout the biosphere to a point where, you know, we, we have to ceaselessly innovate in order to, uh, and to keep up with that that pressure that we're putting on on um, on these systems, not just natural and unnatural, but you know, uh, of exchange of you know what we could call standards of living, these other things. And so, I guess to 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 come back around and open it up to you guys, what it? I guess that was one of the things I was wondering about, right? Like, what in the end does that? I guess it's that question of Marx and his understanding of non-anthropomorphic sex, right? Like, did you guys see in the chapter what this dialectic or not, or really non-dialectic of the little girl Marx and and the old man Marx, were you seeing um, some of the stuff about sexuality and genitality and these other relations where, did you have any thoughts about that undercurrent in this, in this chapter? I really like...
2: What you just said, I think that was really well put. And it reminds me back to that, his term, the joissance of infinity mm. is, is sort of a main characteristic of our society. And I, I actually really like Alexander Dugan in the fourth political theory uses the term monotonic process, which is a, a, sort of a, when some sort of environment, it gets plugged in for infinite growth and mm. then it destroys the environment. Right. If like cancer basically is a monotonic process. Mm -hmm. And he's obviously kind of a little bit more primitivist fascist. He says that basically what the post, what the uh, choice of infinity is, is this monotonic process where we need to keep going, keep going. Growth itself is the value of society, you know? And that reminds me of like, and it, it, it comes from also that, that ability to reproduce at a way that's not actually very natural. Like the the ability to have like 14 billion humans on the planet is not something that would be sustainable in like an equilibrium environment. It just wouldn't happen. But in a monotonic process, we're, we're pushing the very boundaries of what can be considered a sustainable equilibrium, which usually leads to destruction and Dugan wants to say it's that, but I think it's much more complicated than that. I think a monotonic process is not necessarily a bad or destructive thing. It's just something that we don't have Sort of like a natural way to understand it, other than sort of the collapse of ecosystems. But if we have this desire for the infinite, there's, there's no reason to believe that that will just, that that's not actually sustainable. You know, there's sort of the idea of just like going into space, you know, and right. having all of that excess libidinal energy towards infinity just keep going westward, young man, in, in sort of the Whitmany sense mm. of, you know, we always have this frontier that we can push the infinite, the monotonic process further.
3: How much is that just an ontological realism, for example, like to the extent that, you know, call me out on my naturalistic fallacy, but this notion of tie's expenditure, um, how much of this is like potlatch? Pot uh, all economies are potlatching economies in the sense that there's always going to be excess energy, for example, in any system, right. including just like an existing biosphere. Um, trying to use up, for example, the resources uh, for whatever means necessary, sustaining life, right. and producing economies. Which are some always going to be tied to some extent. I mean, this is that's the whole point of Leotard saying that all economies are libidinal, or, or like in right. that sense, they're all. We're in a way, we're all just potlatching with the sun because the sun, even even the sun, you know, is is a a system that's reached equilibrium and will eventually burn out. But in that sense, it's like, which one was going to burn out first? You know, the the horrendous thing that we call life on earth or the sun. And I think we're losing catastrophically, right? To use that language of like burnout. The sun is much less likely to (laughs) burn out anytime soon than, you know, the notion of, you know, stretching across, creating, for example, you know, a local solar, you know, a civilization or, or even like a galactic civilization. To me, that just sounds science fiction-y to the extent that it's just it's not possible in the sense that there's just not sufficient energy
2: right as of right now yeah it seems like the monotonic process doesn't have a stable source of energy right now The, the idea i think is is this excess desire is our society capable of basically creating innovating enough quickly enough to maintain enough supply of energy to have that continued excess of infinite growth. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. Like right now, that doesn't seem possible. But if a new source of energy comes around that's capable of powering things much cheaper and with less, with more efficiency, I tend to think that Dugan is wrong to say that the monotonic process is just naturally destructive, because I think there's something to be said about the idea of negative entropy, that humans can create sort of negative entropy in the sense that, have you guys ever heard of Maxwell's demon? The idea being like, if you had enough information to choose which particles you want to let in and whatnot, you can reverse entropy itself, you know? And so there's this capacity for information to create a negative entropy system that can sustain itself across the entropic dissolution of the universe. The question is, what does that
3: look like? Just to kind of push back on this, but how much of this is just an opening of time scales right so just because something seems for example short term seems like it has like a quick burnout process and then a qualitative innovation or even a quantitative innovation innovation in the way that we consume resources or capitalism's next phase how much of that is just like opening up a time scale and stretching mm. that out farther you know for example yeah. uh, industrialization was just a particular point in this process that you can call capitalism financialization seems to be the next step in that same trajectory and you know we're moving to whatever comes next i don't even know what you would uh, you could chart it as but it seems like more and more we're just moving to this point of capitalism's autonomization from labor inputs from humans and so in that sense it's like how much of that is just opening up the the bandwidth of time right and in that sense given that there's let's just say that like an infinite amount of uh, time dilation that you could create for that is it still a negative entropy process or is it just a entropy process at a larger scale?
2: I think it can be a negative entropy process. If you can basically, like if you had AI that can open up those time scales and find enough fixed inputs, you know, that you need to predict those things with the increase in that time dilation, I think there's a possibility of utilizing that information enough to sustain negative entropy. And I think that's (laughs) the That's the point. The the question is, how much time dilation do you need for that kind of information? And two, even more importantly, what are these fixed variables that you need to input in order to simulate these things? That's really the big problem, too. Like, can you fix these variables in a way that you can find good enough theories of information? And that's going to be, I think, sort of like in the same sense of Riza's intelligence and spirit. That's sort of the challenge going forward. And oddly enough, I think it's a strangely inhuman challenge. Human intelligence is not going to be effective enough to create that kind of negative entropy. It's going to have to be the time dilation of extremely advanced computers and possibly even intelligence that is autonomous in its own ability to process that information without human inputs.
3: I was just about to mention that that sounds a lot like uh, Razor's project. Mm-hmm. And so far as it, that would be the trajectory of guys uh, guys is something mm-hmm. that's like, as you mentioned, rightfully, like inhuman, how, like how mm-hmm. in a way, really in a, in a sense, removing reason or rationality from something that's uniquely human Yeah. And in that sense, moving it to something that even more grandiose or more, I wouldn't even know the word for it, more. I liked grandiose. That's like a, that's
2: exactly (laughs) what I imagined. It is a grandiose idea, isn't it? Like to, to move intelligence beyond the capacity of humans, to make intelligence into an entity separate from
3: the subjects that utilize it. It's like making intelligence an object. (laughs) Yeah. For itself or something.
2: And it makes sense though, like in the Heideggerian sense of the Dasein. The understanding of ourselves comes from our ability to have that sort of separation from the present to time. And like we're saying, if you have increased time dilation, I would assume, under the Heideggerian sense, that you have a more a more grandiose, so to speak, Dasein, or a more almost inhumanly intelligent
3: Dasein, unsubjectivized.
1: <laughs> exactly. Symbolic exchange, at least for Beaudrillard, and I think Lehtari critiques this as not being as this notion of symbolic exchange not being sufficient but what it is is uh at least for he, in symbolic exchange and death he's making this argument that these sort of pre-capitalist societies engaged in symbolic exchange rather than what i think leotard's argument is that they're right he says there are no primitive societies so, yeah they, so there's this sort of at least in some form this capitalist exchange mode is maybe even like does he say call it the iron law of exchange or my I've heard that somewhere but Baudrillard's notion is yeah this this is something that sort of short circuits capitalist exchange
0: i think on page 120 is where he says some interesting stuff he brings in semiology lacan Jakobson, you know he says the question of symbolic exchange, the fear is not as we have thought, the fear of no longer being able to give the category of the gift is a theatrical idea It belongs to semiology. It presupposes a subject a limit of his proper body and his property and the generous transgression of this property, yada, yada, he goes into clowning and stuff. Basically he's kind of saying it, it presupposes a, a unitary body, mm. a it presupposes subjects between which there would be exchange. And so it kind of, I think the extrapolating it's like begging the question of of the foreclosure of like polymorphous perversity and the part partial drives and the pulsions et cetera and kind of saying and this is where he gets he gets into saying circulation is is merely production in the broadest sense right so circulation is also suspect if we are to critique production we have to critique circulation and exchange. And, and, and you know, it reminded me of, about Sartre on when he makes this turn and tries to craft the existentialist Marxism, you know, he wants to presuppose scarcity at the at the heart of economy. Yeah. And we look at someone like Bataille, who flips that on his head, if you will, or scarcity is merely an effect of primordial expenditure and excess and exudence and exuberance. and. You know, Deleuze and Guattari try to kind of hone in on on a middle part, if it's even middle, but it's it's it, it's a non-dialectical relation between these two because they want to say that if we provisionally can use, in scare quotes, primitive societies, the you know what makes exchange possible is is marking, and I think Bataille actually is good on this with his notion of potlatch and and the fact that this excessive. Uh, destruction of consumption through destruction, or this consumption through loss, is in the end a means of attaining rank, attaining prestige, which itself is both a marker and a function of because it's about power. Because in the end, it is a a means of establishing power as a marker, right? It it then establishing clout. Well, yeah, you can call it clout. It is a consequence of this, you know, intense expenditure, which seemingly has no direct benefit, but in fact,
1: yeah, it has a social utility,
0: a symbolic utility,
1: or a, what is it, sign value, more than anything,
0: in a boulevardine sense. Right. Right, and so I think that, you know, for Deleuze and Guattari, you know, to talk about the gift as, or the counter gift, the symbolic exchange as primary, is to, uh, is to kind of put the, the, the cart before the horse or whatever, right, That that there is, that the first, the territorial machines, right, that they are markings, they are marking bodies, they're taking, that one has to first take stock, right? One has to, the circulation of values, presupposes an establishment in bodies of of values, right? Is it worthwhile to look at this famous Lacan quote, one of my
1: favorites about love? When Lacan says to love is to give what one has not, he means to forget that one is castrated. It should mean one never has anything. There is no subject. And so there is nothing but love. Not only is there never anything to give because one has nothing, but there is no one to give or to receive it is in the theory of signs that donatory exchange or the gift as the primitive form of exchange may be represented as the attribution of a devolution of an object charged with effects. So someone who at the beginning of the cycle didn't have it for the sign is just something which replaces something else, hides and manifests something else for someone, for the addressee, and also for the sender.
3: I don't know how much I'm going to actually touch up on the quote, but it kind of reminds me of this distinction at least in terms of the term that's used in blues and guitar, which is the flows. And like, if we think about like phylologocentrism, the way that traditional economics like describes exchanges in that sense, I don't know, like direct contracts or like transactions or whatever, but sees them less as these libidinal flows of production, which is usually seen as a feminine structure, at least like for like, you know, making the metaphor like explicit, like a flow, like a like a menstrual flow. In that sense, I'm trying to think back where I where, where. <laughs> it was. Like you were reading this, and I just had the thought: I want to connect this to this notion of castration, but castration from traditional forms of economics. Maybe what are the conditions for exchange, or for the formation of a commodity within a society and in, a, in a, a Kantian sense? What are the what are the smallest necessary categories for the formation of a commodity? And in that sense, that project would be stuck within this phallologocentrism, like this rationality of utility as opposed to this, um I guess like the way that Leotard is illustrating in the banilla economy this more or even like the losing Guattari, this more feminine or more, you know, more uh castrated form of economy or economic critique.
2: Could you explain a little further this sort of symbolic castration that you're talking about? I think that's really interesting, but I don't know if I fully grasp uh, like exactly what you're what you're referring to.
3: We were talking about earlier how like Utility is always seen or used to describe traditional economics. And so, in that sense, the commodity or the commodities of the labor, all of that is already systematized. At least, even you can see this in Marxist labor theory of value, which is the excess value is already something that's incorporated and it's that which is creating the profit for, you know, the excess value is that which creates profit for the you know the oppressing class and in that sense even that form of revolutionary marxist critique of, ca- of economics or capitalism is still within this phallologocentrism. and so to kind of step outside of that box to kind of critique critique it from this angle of lividinal intensities is to and i mean this in a metaphorically like to castrate oneself of this dependency on utility or utility value or uh, instrumental rationality and kind of out, out a step outside of that box and into well, like libidinal critique, for example. Let's just assume that that's Leotard's project. It's like a libidinal critique. Not only would you use material flows, which are then directly material affects, as we were talking about, you can't make sense of an object's virtuality and how that's connected to a value when you're using instrumental or instrumental rationality or like utility, because in that sense. That would already be incorporated into that system. And so there's always going to be this excess utility or this excess value, which is not accounted for in that system. And it would just be purely that libidinal intensity or just kind of had this thought, maybe like Judge, uh, what is the guy that I thought he was? It's not so much that Judge Schraver, it's like becoming woman is an affect, right? It's like that feeling or that intensity of becoming woman. It's not like there is an already established category, but about what being woman is it's that intensity or that affectivity of becoming woman and in a way maybe like that's what this like you can see the the project of libidinal economy in the same way it's like economic critique become becoming libidinal or something like that
2: i think it's interesting like back to that lacanian part of it i like that idea that there's this infinite excess and i think lacan's idea of lack being sort of you have desire that's directed or you're becoming using desire towards certain signifiers say becoming woman you have an idea a signification of what woman means there's Mm -hmm. always an excess desire that's going to overflow on the signifier because you never are really becoming like you're saying the signifier or becoming the thing that's sort of like platonically ideal in your head it's always just the direction basically of your becoming which is always excessive to the signage that you're using to direct your desire in the first place
1: does objet-ah play into that as the object cause of desire and that sort yeah. of horizontal movement from object to object of
2: desire? Cool. You want to explain a little further? I think that's a really interesting <laughs> point.
1: I don't know if I can that way. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. objet ah, gets a little bit confusing, but I, feel yeah. I have the idea of that being like the motion of desire is this sort of parallel movement from object yeah. to object as you you're sort of following this trail, you pick up the commodity, you consume it, and then you just move move onward because there's
2: always that
1: excess.
2: It always reminds me too of like in, you know, maybe this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but it reminds me of the void of sort of success that David Foster Wallace was really into of like people who reach the signification of what they wanted to become very early in their life. Like for David Foster Wallace, it was the fact that he was kind of an acclaimed novelist before he even, you know, was 25 years old. And once you reach that sort of signification of becoming, you hit this void where you realize what you desired is not actually the thing itself. It was just sort of a way to direct your desire that now you still have to desire something. Your desire is excessive to the goals that you had in place.
1: In that sense, are you sort of still trapped? I described it earlier as that the sort of iron law of exchange. And I
2: think that's kind of the castration that
1: cute right. that, uh, so. was
2: talking about, or at least how I understood how you were explaining the symbolic castration, is that castration of not ever getting to actually fully satisfy your desire through an object, but to always have that excessive desire that'll create sort of a void once you get the object. Once you get what you actually want, you realize it's not actually what you wanted. It was just something that captured elements of your desire. And you sort of mistake that for what you wanted. My life would be complete if I simply won the lottery or something. And then you win the lottery and you realize that the desire is still there. Right. It didn't just get fulfilled.
0: I would just say that it's... it's- the sentiment of what you're saying is exactly right, but Lacan wants to like make this a little bit even more paradoxical. It's precisely mm-hmm. insofar as objet petit is a mirror effect, is 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 a part of the imaginary. It's when we sort of are too close to it and we see that it's not lacking, mm. that, that it's somehow full. Like with Wallace, and it's like uh, the dog catching the the tire. What now, right? So it's when that that it's not lacking. That's precisely when anxiety arises. So that's why the object is is something that, that always has to be, quote unquote, for a neurotically normal, you know, uh, relation of desire has to be perpetually deferred, right? And that gets us back to this notion of the postponement about right. Marx talking about the artistic unity of his work and how he needed everything. Everything has to be like together to then be able to create a sort of evaluation and valuation of, of the artistic whole. And it's that desire for unity that, that I think brings Lyotard to, again, gets us back to questioning this theory of communication that we see either in semiology or in this anthropological symbolic exchange. This presupposition of, of, of unitary subjects, even though, quote unquote, reality is, is dissected and partialized from the start, so yeah, I mean, I think that on my book, it's 127, but Lyotard actually brings up the object of Tia. He says, so once again, the connivance appears between a philosophy of alienation and a psychoanalysis of the signifier, both nihilist religions. Apart from Baudrillard's use of the latter making it slip into optimism towards the hope of a restitution of the true state of desire. Whereas the strictly Lacanian version, if indeed it implies a dialectic of the cure, nevertheless rules out that the illusory objectivity ah, and its function of the fixation of ambivalence in the occ- occlusion of the want to signify might never be dissipated. Interminable analysis, permanent revolution. And so I think Lyotard there is, you know, not just dinging Baudrillard a little bit. We talked about this last time with this dialectic of the, the noble savage and this origin that would fill in a supposed lack, you know, the true versus the... You know, just that, just that notion of the true that Leotar wants <laughs> to rail against. I think that that he's he's kind of taking what I was saying about the, the object of ti is, is it's always kind of different or deferring itself from being present and full. Leotard is bringing it back to this is the this is a really nice yoking of Freud and Marx here. Interminable analysis, permanent revolution. I mean, at the end of Freud's life, obviously, that was his question: is is analysis turnable and interminable, Right? Is there a, is there a true end to analysis? And Guattari, of course, is one of those proponents that says yes, the there is a point at which the analysis has to stop, has to be broken off. That doing otherwise is not just a means of growing your clientele list and and taking in more and more money in a kind of way that's. That, that that falsifies the but it, but it but it also leads a kind of dependence right it almost leads an over a supercharging of transference that then you know then the the analyst becomes either the the priest and the gateway to desire or whatever but also a kind of crutch in that sense also a stumbling block and an obstacle for you know because for lacan the cure is always just a bonus right even if the cure is theoretically important for him it's a bonus and it's whether or not yoking in the permanent revolution here too gets us back to what he says earlier in the chapter about you know the communist party less wanting revolution than wanting the means by which to produce the revolution and and thereby accrue to itself the kind of attribution of either being at the vanguard or or whatever and and you see the dissatisfaction with a lot of French intellectuals with this more and more kind of conservative alliance between the official French communist party and someone like De Gaulle and these other Mm -hmm. thinkers that they're always trying to pose that. They're always saying like the conditions aren't ripe or whatever. Right. So trying to, uh, to be the manufacturers or or the cause or the source of revolution in a way that is disingenuous and not, not actually in tune with, whether we call it the increase of mode of production or relations of production, that, that contradiction, however you want to, however you want to state it. Retain that,
3: that priestly status that he mentions. Yes. I guess this question for all of you guys, but Taylor, since you brought it up in terms of how much of this is directly then uh, kind of underlying the whole failure of, is it May of 68, you know, in terms of that, um, if we're, as you mentioned, if you're you're jo- joking in Marx and Freud and you know setting up that perpetual revolution, it's like, well, <laughs> they were so close to getting what they wanted. Maybe they did get what they wanted right, and, and then that, and that notion they, they were so close to you know revolution, you could say, or that in that very nature that by by very virtue of that they they couldn't they couldn't have that. It was it wasn't what they actually were set what? out or yeah correct like yeah wanted at the end. That's like a
2: uh, Coop should quote the the quote but the Lacan quote to the the students of May 68. <laughs> I don't know if you you probably have it a uh, better for oh, of what if the, you want to say? It.
1: The one and about what you master
2: and you will get it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Something along yeah. those lines. It's it's hard
0: not to think about the you know the works that we commonly bring up uh, you know symbolic exchange and death, Oedipus, even the even the you know, in this chapter, he cites um, Francois Guerry uh, uh-huh. a number of times, the co-author of The Productive Body. And he talks about that. That came out in 72. And uh, this came out 74, 73. You know, so obviously all of this is in the aftermath. We can't forget that it's in the aftermath of, um, of May 68. And whether or not you want to call it a failed revolution, you know, that's not necessarily wrong. It is... And it's and again, it's not right to, you know, what what you what you get a sense of, uh, especially with like uh, reading the the cross biography, the intersecting lives, especially with Guattari, you know, this the reason why he's constantly both kind of like inside the French Communist Party and sort of creating all these different groups that are trying to ceaselessly push it to the left is precisely because of the resistances that there's there's something about the about the party that it was it was constantly wanting to slow things down and and make compromises and and it, now they it, you can't blame the party itself for the failure of May 68 to 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 have opened up into something more it is more so that you know the the conjunction of uh, of workers and students especially the students you know this that kind of conjunction you know can't necessarily be theoretically foreseen and predicted and and so the aftermath of it you know leads to all of this kind of reflection all this kind of reflection about you know whether we say it's the you know this um the conjunction of the analytic and the revolutionary machine as it and want to talk about in terms of schizoanalysis or or with leotard and 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 questioning you know, this, this questioning Marx and Freud in his own way, in terms of libidinal economy, right, that all of this, you know, 68, if if anything, forced this kind of reflection that, that you see a huge leap from the preceding generation that was content, like, like even Sartre comes a little late, you know, in 60, right, in the critique of dialectical reason, like he's, there's still a way in which classical Marxism, whether or not it's bolstered by existentialism, doesn't have the proper doesn't yet have the proper tools theoretically to to lay the foundations for not just predicting, but providing, you know, positive theoretical means to for for 68 to take hold of. So it's 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 that kind of thing. It's this, you know, Lacan might talk about it as like this eruption of the real, right? And and there's there's there is a way in which it's it's both the trauma and, you know, the wound for which we were born. It's something that, that, has, that, that, that has to be, um, I'll just say, like, 68, what I think about a lot is coming out of nowhere, so to speak, if you will, at least theoretically, coming on conditions on the ground. It's very different from all the revolutions we saw in 1848. Uh, you know, which was preceded by the Communist Manifesto, you know, we can't say that there was a direct cause, but it was definitely a rallying cry that helped to mobilize, you know, these multiple disparate uh, movements uh, in many different countries. And you can see 68 is also like a dissatisfaction with the the evolution of uh, the Soviet Republic, uh, post-Stalinism and, and the, the, the failure of, or the tension and the seeming failure of, what is meant to be a global communist movement being being merely kept in in the uh, you know in these disparate states and nations yeah. and so and so that I think that kind of dialectic and that tension overflowed boundaries for which the neither the conservative typical political parties, including the French Communist Party, had uh, means at their disposal to either direct or to channel in ways that could have led you know. Even for a, a national institution of of quote unquote you know communism or socialism or whatever right it, but it but it did lead to certain concessions too, mm-hmm. and I think that we see with Lyotard and Deleuze and Guattari and these and Badou and these other thinkers those concessions were means of stopping the that overflow that spread, right. rather than necessarily promoting it was way it was a way to keep the the bar from spinning spinning too too fast right yeah. <laughs> that, that, that
2: i think that's that's super interesting and i think loyotard especially is is the one who to me well just in my own personal reading of him is this sort of postmodern critical turn that he's trying to lay on us that's more in the postmodern condition this collapse of meta narratives mm-hmm. which i think yep. is the major critique we need to put on to historical materialism because it's like you're saying the failure of 68 or sort of the view of both communists, left accelerationists, and reformists mm-hmm. is this historical materialist oh. meta-narrative that communism is inevitable, that the revolution is inevitable. Therefore, we will make our long march through the institutions, as right. Levitard says it, right? And instead, you get this, this collapse of your, your potential to actually create the sort of political ideals that you have. Instead, you're sort of allowing these concessions to sort of institutionalize your views under this view that eventually you will reach these long-term sort of goals. But what I think we see today in liberalism is, you know, the failure of 68 led to this long institutional march where we're trying to change liberalism from the inside, but then you turn into the very petite bourgeois elites that are hated by the very people that you want, right? Instead of a communist revolution, you get this postmodern QAnon revolution where the long march through the institutions is only given even fascists or liberalism to point the finger and be like look at the communists are taking over let's stop them you know meanwhile the communists sort of have to come to grips with the fact that it's not necessarily true that communism is just the historical right. inevitability right in fact if you believe that it can actually be
3: counterproductive to achieving the very political goals that you set out in the first place it almost sets like the ripe grounds for you know the con quote that we keep bringing up it's like what you want is an actual mm-hmm. what, what you want is a master because in that sense it's like well <laughs> i'll take any sort of oppression in a way right. it's like that quote i think it's marx's quote actually where the last revolution will redeem all the other ones in a way Same it's like Benjamin. yeah but, yep. so in a way it's like if that's the case like let's just say that's that is true well why why do you have to do anything? It's like yeah, just right. just be oppressed. It's like just wait, just, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just wait. It, it's if
2: wait it's it's Jesus to come back.
0: Yeah. And, I uh, mean,
2: it's that's Loyotard, that's the Marxist version of Loyotard's joy of postponement. The revolution is always on the horizon in the same way that like infinite growth is on the horizon for the economist or, or jesus's or right. jesus's
1: triumphant return
2: exactly the messianic <laughs> time in both the church and benjamin uses messianic time to talk about the coming of the revolution this yeah. postponement this this great pleasure in the, the idea that eventually we'll get there you know
0: yeah he says this is a bottom of 142 he talks about this is back where he talks about He's, he says at the top of the paragraph prostitutes getting organized to fight the domination of the pimps. He's like, what, what do they want? What's the political consequence? Is it just to get more uh, higher rates per lay? You know, if we do that, then you're still remaining in the same system. He says the good fight aims on the contrary to emancipate the venal bodies from the bargaining of their alleged procurers uh, and to reestablish everywhere the magnificent transcend- transcendence of the one who gives, which makes, which masks the infamy of the one who receives. The hope of the young political woman is simply that the prostitutes become fertile virgins once more, members of a pure and organic body which they form in reality. I'm gonna skip ahead. The emotions of hate or despair which may seize leftist militants or the most infuriated workers when they see the proletariat accept, after renegotiating, the rates for its prostitution do not of course have economic motives as in fact, the leaders of companies, unions and parties all good pimps, complain, they nourish themselves in the passion for an elsewhere, for an organic body hidden beneath the abstract body of capital, for a force lodged underneath or outside power relations. Uh, he puts this earlier about this natural communism, or this this full, to do away with decision and to establish the great full common body of natural reproduction communism. So I think that... Um, what we were talking about you know what he says at the very beginning of the chapter is like all these parties the bolshevik party the the french communist party the the german party these are all compromised formations and i think that that is brings back to what chris was saying about you know this this is this is inevitably where leotard is heading to critiquing grand meta narratives and Marxism being the movement of Geist, you know, for absolute knowledge, the sort of the contradiction, the dialectical, you know, contradictions in capitalism will lead us to, to Marxism and justify all the other revolutions like for Leotard, this is, this is a kind of necessary consequence, I think, of, of the sort of, you know, the, the representative conditions of possibility of discourse, and they have to themselves, you know, be brought to light and be and be critiqued or not critiqued, you know, or just shown to be maybe necessary mirages for our own theoretical movements, but they don't you know, they don't determine the, the sort of the heart of, of of praxis or the heart of the the you know the movement of of, of theory and praxis. Didn't Leotard say that
1: there are no contradictions, there are inequalities in or something like that i feel like that's it i vaguely recall that
0: he does say in discourse figure kind of like Deleuze, that contradiction would not be contradiction opposition would be less than than difference and not like it's extremes he says something kind of like that it may be going back to the last chapter and i don't know if this is necessarily
1: relevant but let's see what is he saying it's like Marx said of the production of the proletariat, new contradictions emanate from this. Once again, our intention is not to reduce that to this and not for a moment do we stop loving and stoking the anger of the anti-economist. Moreover, he takes a great deal of care to show that these contradictions are in no way dialectical and to oppose subversion, which does not itself enter the order of political economy to the claims and counterclaims, which are just the basic constituents of the game, which capital plays with itself. There's no dialectic in Baudrillard, and this is because the subversive reference that of good savage and good hippie is in his eyes, positively present in modern society, not negatively as Marx imagines the proletariat to be the marginals are libidinal affirmations. The proletari- proletarians were negations of negation and a journey and a sublation. We fear only like the consequences of this small detail of this method- uh, methodological nuance that the affirmative should be delimited as a region since every region. Uh, yeah. Yeah. gives rise right, to regime and, and reign to sign a mechanism and therefore all all one's hopes were placed in it one is certain to despair perhaps as politicians we should still and always desire to be in despair
0: he says something very similar at the end of this chapter in the in the tautology section this is 148 it's about two pages from the end He says, compared to Sraffa, Marx's attempt and failure to make the system and his book on the system self replicating can only appear illegitimate, whatever the Althusserians may say. What prevents Marx from making a scientific description is that he must fulfill the function of the prosecutor assigned him by his desire for an integration of goods, means, and persons into a single body, his desire for harmonious genitality. Sraffa's body is as elusive as the body of capital. Commodities are themselves only evident there as the limits of an endless metamorphosis, which suggests the con- congruence of capital's operation with that of a theoretical system. It follows, of course, from such an approach that every catastrophic perspective is excluded. The death of capital cannot come to it from within, from some contradiction. There is no contradiction. There are at most dis- disequilibrium states. Yes. There is no death yeah. through destruction. I think that's, that's the, yeah, that's the go. one I was thinking of. Yeah.
3: It's kind of reminds me of Minima Moralia by Adorno. He kind of talks yeah. something similar like this that that whole notion of uh, Marxist critique is established on contradictions, and it, there are no contradictions because that's already part of the capitalism's dialectic in a way. Like it's already right, the yeah. contradictions themselves are part of that, uh, in Hegelian terms of that, um, negation, and so it's like it's already incorporated or is already part of that, uh, dialectic towards you know X. I don't know if I could explain it very well here, <laughs> but I, I
2: was going to say that this idea of contradictions to me, the writing of Mao on contradictions is actually like one of the only Marxists that I've read that sort of actually deals with this problem on a very tangible level. And I don't know if I can like go into great detail. I'll have to relook at that now, but I think that's like that's like a problem a problem for today is like what does the dialectic look like in, in relation to contradictions? I think Mao actually kind of saves dialectics as sort of a a philosophical and political praxis. But I think there is something to be said about sort of the post-dialectical thought that you see in Loyattar, Deleuze, and Baudrillard, where you almost just have these two polar levels that exist simultaneously, not in necessarily antagonism to each other, but just exist as sort of two polarities.
1: Loruel, have any... He also is not Hegelian in his... More talks about like a dyadic formation. I don't know if that has any relevance to this, what Chris was saying at all or not, but.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, with, with Well the movement of dialectic of contradiction, uh, you know, he, you know, being a good post Deleuzean, post Deridian, whatever you, whatever the post means there being, <laughs> you know, understands that, you know, what, what he, what he bases non-philosophy on is this notion of a unity of contraries. Ah, that's and right. And so so for him, you know, the one is is outside of the that dy- you said it, the, that dyadic play of 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 contraries that cuz I mean for him it's it's this and it gets us back to Leotard and reading Leotard and and you know, we have to use discourse and representative notions and concepts even if we rail against them at the same time and 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 undermine that that play Um, I think with with Laura Well, this is precisely the goal of non-philosophy is to show systematically how we can free up language in its representative aspect without considering the movement of contraries through absolute spirit, blah, 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 to be somehow co-determining or of the real, right? And so this is why he's what he wants to you know critique in philosophy is its spontaneous use of language and how it is it has a certain faith in the use of language that it fails to theorize and it fails to to see now obviously for larwell he's aware of this too and he he talks about this in his own way about how well you use language uh yada yada but for him it's not it's not a problem. It, it, it's, it's only a problem when we uh don't have this foreclosure of, of the one two thought It's 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 when we think that thinking and language, etc., uh and you know, being can not just be used selectively to describe, but actually co-constitutes the real in a Kantian way. That's when we get into these. These paralogisms and these uh, these aporias, and that's when we are in the thick of of philosophy, which you know for him it's not about putting an end to it. I think for Lyotard, there is a sense in which uh, there is a kind of accelerationist drive, a nihilistic drive to to <laughs> to to push philosophy to its death to a certain extent, if if only for its resurrection, its glorious resurrection or something, right? But I think with Larwell it's no question of of killing philosophy and that that's a kind of, that that repeats a kind of romantic heroism. It repeats yeah. the philosopher's heroic gesture of, of sort of intervening and, and saving, saving the real from another philosophical system. And then and, and that just gets us back no better than Plato with this question of, of the hierarchy of claimants, right? And And I think that Laurel wants to put an end to that the hierarchy of claimants, which which doesn't necessarily mean in Majorca's sense that all thoughts are equal. There's a there's a kind of equivocation in in that in, in starting with that or or leaving that 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 phrase itself to be self-evident because I don't think Laura Wall wants to say that that all thoughts are equal. There'd be a kind of delusional moment where you know, there's a univocity of beings where they're kind of equal in their inequality, that kind of shit. Right. I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I but yeah, with Lyotard, I think he wants, um, he's not necessarily setting up a, a theoretical framework and scaffold for us to reproduce libidinal economy or the writing of, you know, he's not, he's not showing us like, here's how it's done. We have to go on the journey with him. We have to be able to, to, to sort of, you know, vibe and ride the waves that, that really do, uh, you know, overflow us and crash and, and crush our our usual conceptual apparatuses. It's precisely because Leotard is is wanting to say that, you know, with his stuff on symbolic exchange, he's wanting to say one of the primordial, if you want to stick with philosophy, one of its one of his elements of exchange is, is concepts. And I think Laura well would agree with Lyotard there that it's precisely the it's precisely the symbolic exchange of concepts in this kind of in this way uh, in this you know, sort of this movement and shuffling of concepts that philosophy eh, excels at and, 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 and that it never calls into question because it is, um, it's, it's lifeblood. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, well, you know, he, he wants to say that all, all philosophies are kind of these belated abortions and they're always on, on, on life support, but never, never cease to, uh, to work for you know for for all of that
1: how much is there a parallelism between so leotard's kind of notion of not anti critique but uh, he's saying you know we're kind of done with critique is there a kind of equivalence to like laurwell's approach to non philosophy there like in a certain sense i just think the terms you terms what
0: i i think the terms wouldn't overlap i don't think laurwell would would reject there being critical notions I just think that 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 it can't stand by itself it can't stand alone. that mm-hmm. critique alone is not enough. I think he would agree with leotard there it's just that non-philosophy you know the the name of the re- of the real or the one whatever you want to however you want to put it it does have critical theoretical analytical and pragmatic effects and so but I do think he would agree with leotard that at a certain point the critique of philosophy, is is, uh, is 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 a preliminary gesture and it, and it, and it doesn't it, it doesn't suffice unto itself right and and and, and leotard himself make, makes the point He's like look there's hundreds of thousands of critiques of marx we don't need another one and if we merely were to pick and choose which ones that we think are best then we really are only showing our our ass our biases we're showing a kind of prejudice for for how we for our own political economy aligning with our libidinal economy. And, and so it's really about some sort of movement of unconscious investments that we want to make. And it's a political gesture, first and foremost, rather than getting to the heart of, of the libidinal meat matter. And I think that that's why he's his quote unquote reading of Marx is so interesting. And, and he wants to, he brings out a kind of, complexification and complication and calling into question of marx himself on his own terms rather than critiquing him in a in a traditional way right so if if we can still call this critique and sometimes Leotard will say i'm slipping back into critique for a moment i don't think that leotard is 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 satisfied with with staying there because then one would merely be doing another one-upsmanship one would be merely be doing a a kind of Hegelian thing, where it's like, if we just find the right, you know, oppositions and whatever, we can we can keep moving in this spiral manner. And I don't think Leotar buys into that. I think that's another meta narrative that he's all he's already he's already not happy with. It's it's not enough.
3: Do you see? Because you, what you mentioned was really interesting in terms of Laurel's project. His non-philosophy is it more than a science? Maybe, as you could call it, a science of developing dispositives, or like that—that that third middle term.
0: You know, that- that's a good question. He does—he does want to talk about non-philosophy as he'll talk about it th- these days as a generic science, or that it leads to a type of generic science because he's become much more explicit about this in the past he would he would have talked about it as a as a kind of quasi-science or even a pseudoscience but in a positive way right because it because there's a sense in which you know for him philosophy is always wanted to be science and it's precisely that desire that 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 confounds it and that and that makes it fall into its its spontaneous usage and its and its self-sufficiency and its you know and, and its and its self-legitimization precisely by doing what it thinks thinking is and you see this from Kant to Heidegger this 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 notion that somehow science needs philosophy to to undergird it or to structure it or to scaffold it or to prompt it, to ask the question of being or or whatever. Right. Um, And I think that, you know, that's why Larwell will reject Heidegger's notion that science doesn't think it's just that it doesn't, doesn't think in a philosophical way. And so, you know, the notion of, I find the notion of generic science is one of the ways I talk about it is it's like, when a medicine loses its patent and then its value on the market decreases because there are generics out there. There's something about that to to how non-philosophy works with with philosophy or with sufficiency in general decision. It's it's precisely this downgrading. It's this degrowth and and depotentialization of philosophy's claims, sort of bringing it down to a level where it's no longer bootstrapping itself in a way that would make it seem like it's the queen of, of the sciences, right? Metaphysics, as yes. Kant, Kant calls it, and you know whether or not we think that that's that Larwell succeeds in, in being able to provide the foundations for that is, is, is one question, but I do feel, at least in my own opinion, I feel like there is something that Lyotard is getting to here as well with his rejection of critique, where he is trying to say that that to a certain extent, critique, theory, philosophy, just taken in general, uh, and he includes like structuralist and linguistics in this and, and, and eth- ethnography and ethnology the, there's a sense in which they are, they're kind of high on their own supply or they're, they're just, they're, they're too big for their britches or something like that. Right. And, and you see some of this in some of the best of Nietzsche when he says that, you know, philosophizing should be, should be psychologizing, like the idleness of philosophy wanting to settle into a system, right. That, um reintroducing movement etc and not necessarily in, in a hegelian sense although one can one can we, there are some great hegelian thinkers i mean Nagarastani is obviously one of them too but uh gabriel Catrin, who is i think tapped into some of this where you know reorienting Hegel in a certain way we can use it to undermine constantly undermine all these presuppositions that we bring with ourselves as as human you know subjects and all of this and and to be able to like radicalize that 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 undermining because for Ketrin it's about sort of that there's a gravity of thought there's a gravitational the hold and force that sort of keeps us bound to the to the earth which we use as a territory to sort of build up these edifices and that we need to like untether ourselves unmoor ourselves from this gravitational center and become like the astronauts of thought right I think he calls them like I think he may have called them like no knots or something, right? Like we need to like un- untether from, from that solid foundation. I think for Larwell, um, you know, unlike for Sartre, you know, Sartre, he wants to say that like a philosophy is only as good as, as the sort of the thoughts and actions and whatever it informs in the rising class and that it, and that it dies and passes away. I think for someone like, like Larwell and, and for someone like Katrin and, you know, using Hegel that like a philosophical system is never, never dead. Just, it just, it, it needs to be sort of vectorized and like plugged in, right? We need to like rediscover those, those tensors, the tensor signs, as Leotard might okay. say, that can, that can, um, that can give them a relevance. And it's, it's, it's just the fact that we have to be careful lest we slip into merely a, a, a historicizing archivalist work you know that stuff's important, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't suffice unto itself to, um, radically, uh, you know, plug in the, um, the ways in which even, you know, old philosophers, even the pre Platonics, or whoever, even some unknown rediscovered philosopher can, can, can spark a, uh, maybe not a movement, but at least spark a, uh, a new orientation that has these effects that that are unprecedented there it's unforeseen you know thought thoughts potential opening of events for action it's unforeseen and, and i think that that's that's why leotard again is is wanting to say critique's not enough right critique is it seems to be hedging your bets it seems to be um more of a compromise formation and a stabilization and a and a a lubricating of the means of circulating concepts rather than a sort of an effusion or a, an exuberance, right? As Bataille might say, that that would overflow the bounds of the system. And I think that that's essentially why this is a, a kind of an accelerationist text, right? When he's saying that contradictions aren't going to kill capital. It doesn't come from within, mm-hmm. right? We have to, you have to push further and you can see that there would be an allegiance with Deleuze and Guattari, at least of with like, absolutely deteriorate territorialization, push it further, you know, Guattari saying like, no, no, it's not that we need less commodities and, and gadgets, we need more, push it more and more and more, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's-
2: And it's and it's that like in the Deleuze and sense, that's that search for new weapons. It's not yes, push, it, yes. push it further to get to this accelerationist version of historical materialism, where mm-hmm. we reach the conditions for what we want. No, it's let's push this to find more potential, more mm-hmm. weapons, you know, not to get yes. somewhere.
3: Reminds me of that uh, that Nietzschean quote, too, where Nietzsche says, writes along the lines where he's like, I'm not writing for people of my time. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so it's like, yeah, it's, I mean, you can even see this in Artois or uh, Deleuze and Guattari or even like Leotard. Their Nietzscheanism, if you want to call it that, is precisely why you can't really see this like straightforward trajectory, for example, that you could maybe see in some, someone like Kant, Hegel, mm shelling victor maybe in a way why they stand out is because uh what's it called the ai started uh wanting to wanted to get into this guy's uh, guys confirmed there's a-, <laughs> a ghost
0: in the, the shell <laughs>
3: yeah agi a- a- is a guys confirmed guys negaristani was right sorry I-, I lost my train of thought but essentially i just wanted to say um basically just echoing that these figureheads of french philosophy their Nietzsche re- revivalism Ooh, kind of sets mm-hmm. them apart because precisely they are taking Nietzsche Nietzsche to heart when you know he says I'm not writing for people of my time and in a way it's like what does philosophy look like it's not a straight linear development it's mm-hmm. it's it's as you guys already mm-hmm. mentioned it's like this tactile or palpation of uh things to come um, it moves like it's like and a- fits
1: and starts or something like that mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly mm-hmm.
1: maybe something to wrap up on the last kind of big big nugget relatively speaking would be on page 144, just right above that last paragraph on that page. And then on to 145, Leotard is sort of discussing Freud and death drive a little bit here. I'll just kind of pick up here. Living force is the pulsional source of the event. Capital is its death as its binding. Nevertheless, Freud distributed these roles in the opposite way. What produces the event in the system is the death drive. The eros of life is what produces the system. Of course, the inversion of signs enables us to discover an optimism in Marx and a pessimism in Freud. But this, in its turn, conceals the essential since the Marxist dialectic is fulfilled entirely within the interplay of force and system. The action as indirect as one could wish of the former on the latter is what carries it to its point of rupture. With Freud, on the other hand, the opposition between the lethal pulsions and the erotic organization is neither dialectized nor dialectizable, subject to an action of the cure. Of course, the latter binds the former and in a sense benefits from it, the famous secondary benefit. But the former are not external to the regulated apparatus. They rather inhabit it. And this unthinkable cohabitation of the regulator and deregulation in the same signs is properly the dissimulation or dissimilation through which every intense sign appears as a coded sign and some coded but inassignable signs, conceals an intensity. Even if Freud gets this wrong, for example, interpreting the death drive as aggression in civilization as, and its discontents, therefore reestablishing a sort of pulsional binarism, it remains that his invention of 1920 gives rise to a dissimilatory monism. There is no equivalent in Marx, too much of a Christian for that. One first entirely decidable effect, and it is original for this androgynous Marx, is the splitting of force into living force and dead force. Living force gives more than it takes, consumes less than it produces, a little meta-economic miracle of the extravagant gift, which would be forgotten, the forgotten origin of all wealth creation. What is killed in reproduction is uh, this absolute, improbable, negantropic excess. It is a matter of the true origin of capital. The immutable event, which always underlies this process of growing accumulation, which must give rise to its death sentence. The force of labor conceived in this way, a force which gives out more than it expends, fully satisfies the petition formulated by Bataille for expenditure and consumption. Now there's even a, this sentence too makes, kind of goes with it. What is this force, if not the return to critique of an element indispensable to the model of the sovereign gift? Force consumes itself, and in this very consumption, which enables the accumulation of capital, such a model is set up against that of exchange. And then he goes on to say, labor force is exorbitant or at least beyond value and as much as the origin of surplus value escapes the whole system of valuations at the same time as it renders this possible.
3: Maybe the death drive was the friends we made along the way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's interesting that he he wants to say there is there's this monism and it really does force us to... Think back to Beyond the Pleasure Principle and you know it, which is a wild text. <laughs> the Atar says it's his most excessive and emotional text, which I find interesting, especially considering that it starts with a reflection on the end of World War One, right? So it is this kind of meditation on, you know, excessive mechanized warfare and the obviously the the death well, the machines of death involved. And I find it interesting that his, his thing being, it's precisely the the binding of energies in the system that that the system itself requires and almost it's a condition of possibility for the system not to, to crack up and, and dissipate. Is binding the death drive or is it the life drive? And obviously Lyotard is, is trying to, you know, as we've talked about before, he's it's not necessarily ha- having your cake and eating it too, but, but showing that they... They are not necessarily, uh, yeah, they're not opposed. They're like duplicitous, right? That, that they conceal one another, right? As he says about the the intent sign appears as a coded sign, vice versa, right? That dissimulation that he spoke of. So
3: Would it be like maybe just to add a, like a rejection maybe of some underlying telos in this? some sort of binary opposition between these two concepts would be like a direct teleology or like a particular teleological progression by kind of making it this, by kind of drawing it out as a monism, kind of letting both modalities like stand out on their own. The death drive is just as as much part of a living organism or this part of life as much as life is, this inevitability, this process onto death.
0: It's almost like he's saying that Marx is more rigidly Hegelian than Freud. And and I think that Lacan wants to say the same thing too in the in his essay on the subversion of the subject, he wants to say that there is this uh, this radical, even if they may start at a common origin, they radically split the Freudian the Hegelian dialectic, and that Marx is almost too traditionally Hegelian and and he says too Christian for that, which I think is a synonym, you know, with with Freud it's obviously that with Leotard, he, even if Freud wants to schematize them as as an opposition or doing opposite things, they're colluding. And of, of course, I mean, you can see this with every stoner philosophy one on one student who, you know, you could chaos and order. Have you guys seen SLC Punk? Do you know what that is? Mm-hmm. Like when he's, yeah, that's like, are you, you know, are you a, a proponent of chaos or proponent of order? Obviously mm-hmm. they need one another and they, they work together. Um, right. Same, same with life and death. And, and so this monism, I mean, it's, it's kind of like with Freud, obviously like, and he talks about this and beyond pleasure principle. He's like, he, he theorizes these excitations, these internal stimuli, And that the psychical apparatus, when it's functioning, quote, unquote, normally, it actually is meant to bind these excessive energies precisely because the system would would break apart, or he'll say that trauma occurs. And he talks about the, you know, the soldier in war with this fear of death hanging over him. He thinks of it as a kind of psychical shield. Now, a better way to put this, he thinks that the expenditure of forces of the psychical apparatus in that fear of death, that, that, that perpetual anxiety, actually, it actually like expends a certain amount of energy uh, that helps them to deal with physical wounds. Now it leaves them open to psychical wounds, but like, you know, it, it, again, it's, it's this thing where it's like, is, is the death drive the unbound force that threatens the system or is the death drive binding the forces and sort of stabilizing them and killing them and yeah. it's like there's there's no freud wants to make it simple that eros you know creates creates systems and thanatos breaks them down but it's not so clear it's not so simple and this is why Leotard's is like freud simplifies too much in civilization is this intense by saying that death drive is just aggression because he does kind of in civilizations discontent he does slip into a kind of more of a hegelian mode by talking about sublimation and how the only way societies hold together is by men sublimating their desires to like kill and and con- conquer everything and they work together and this is how art comes about through religion and all this stuff he's very he moves very quick in that text and i think that leotard is right to call him out and and say that it's it's it, that it, there is a kind of blunting of of the of the conceptual power of, of the notion of death drive by reducing it to aggression and, and needing it to be sublimated. And so it is a kind of, in his old age, it's like he becomes more Hegelian or something, but um, I'm not sure.
3: Kind of reminds me of what you mentioned earlier, young Alexander Dugans.
0: Monotonic processes.
3: Yeah, you know, this expansion and contraction in a way, kind of using like cancer as an analogy, the if it doesn't have this check of, you know, death or Thanatos, then it'll keep expanding until it burns itself out mm-hmm. inevitably. And in a way to map this onto like the, what is it called? Uh, anti-cib cri- critique of c- civilization in general, or like even ZIAC. You know, it's like there, there's these periods of contraction that are necessary to kind of reach some sort of equilibrium.
2: I've thought a lot about this and tried to do a lot of writing about the death drive as sort of a projected onto the social generally or like civilizational death drive. And it's kind of complicated to me. And, you know, I I love beyond the pleasure principle. I've read that book so many times and probably my favorite Freud text, maybe other than negation. Which uh, Taylor was reading the other week, but the complexity to me is there's simultaneously these two different things going on for the death drive of the socius. To me, in Freud in the Freud's idea of the death drive, it's his death drive is is the the desire to return to a prior state of being. It's almost like an ossification of what I would say like the institutions of a society. You know what I mean? It's almost like. It's almost like a desire not to change is the death drive, right? But then simultaneously, I think there's this separate thing going on that I don't even know if I'll call it the death drive, but there's also this almost like apocalyptic vision of the society, right? There's like this idea that like something needs to change or that something will basically collapse or end. You have simultaneously the death drive that causes stasis of institutions where the life instinct is not strong enough to sort of move beyond the stasis that the organism being the socialist has created for itself. But then there's also this beyond the pleasure principle that's even further that wants to chart out a specific social death, which I think is common in almost every social ideology or or sort of vision of society is sort of like the death drive of communism would say the death of capitalism, you know, fascism would say the death of liberalism. And even liberals would see this sort of death drive function Themselves is like the ultimate stasis of the of the world, like a universal almost stasis of of universal beliefs and institutions. And I've always been very interested in how you would project this death drive onto the onto the socius generally. Which one of those two sort of in my sort of half-ass conjuring of a death drive, which one of those makes more sense in the Freudian sense? Is the death drive that inability to change that eventually causes, say, like an ecological collapse, because we're just not, we don't have the life instinct enough to change the literally the supply chain of energy production, or, you know, the organization of the socius in order to survive further? Or is it a death drive that's actually like revolutionary? And that society, we have a desire to end society itself as it currently stands, almost in that dark Deleuze, If you read dark Deleuze, his whole thing is the death of the death of this world, this desire to, to kill it. To yeah. change, which I think, in my own interpretation, is almost a life instinct to me. Ultimately. Oh, the, the apocalyptic. Right. The apocalyptic vision that usually, like Pynchon would say, the young people, he loves that young people have this apocalyptic vision of how do we end this world in order to start something new. I, I tend to think that that's actually not a death drive. It's actually like an almost a, apocalyptic utopianism.
1: Any final thoughts on that? Anyone else? If um, not, I think we can wrap I think that up. Was,
0: I think that was excellent. That's, that's <laughs> the death drive. We'll have to try to clarify that some more as we keep reading absolutely
2: i'm always interested in clarifying that like i said it's, it's i've never even come to the proper conclusions over years of trying to figure this out so i'm always interested to hear what you guys have to say about the the death drive especially as it's applied in sort of this critical theory like social yeah. sense
1: all right well that'll uh, that'll wrap us up for today in our fourth episode of Wiki leotard I don't know if you want to plug anything real quick before we sign off officially, but if
0: so speak now, give this man a dollar, go to his <laughs> Patreon, go to his Patreon page, support, support coop. If you can pay for a Absolutely. cup of
3: coffee, you can pay for $1. A podcast, yeah.
0: Come on.
2: Definitely buy Taylor's translations and definitely read, Cute text, especially, I think the past two were some of your best work. The past two essays you wrote, I really enjoyed those. So everybody go to Cute Numinous Medium to read those.
1: Well, this is going to be Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, signing off for the week. The
0: very rules of eating of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate
1: form of singularity, which is okay. Okay. To the whole state of- of violence
0: without object. This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. The With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people as in block work orange.